0: You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. I get the sense that much of the challenge in the Christian life can be summed up like this. Either... We believe the scriptures are a historical retelling of things that were factually true of people in the past, but are only wishful thinking for those of us who live in the present. One side. Or we believe that the scriptures contain the promises that God is not someone who merely acted in the past, but promises that were true for the people of Israel and the promises that were true of people of Jesus' day and the same, are the same promises that the Spirit of God speaks to us now, are true for us now, and have the power to alter our lives now. I think so much of it comes down to that. Are the promises true, and are they true for you? Are they true for us? Much of the Bible has this particular outline, but this passage in 1 Peter 5 really hones in on it, and it is the passage of um, God's promises and our response. So I'm going to take this in three headers, and that is humility, warfare, and power, and our response and God's promise through them all. So Peter just gets done addressing the church, both those who are shepherding and those who are being shepherded. And then he addresses all of them and says this, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. I want you to notice something. If you see where it says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that is not just a cute metaphor that has actual serious implications throughout the Bible. So when the people of God huddled up in a little house church in Asia Minor, potentially concerned they would be found out by a Roman guard wandering the streets, questioning who and what it is they are singing to, When the people of God heard under the mighty hand of God, they would have been immediately taken back to the story of the Israelites within the story of God. If you go back to Exodus and you go back to the burning bush, what was the promise given to Moses and the Israelites? In the middle of the desert where a bush catches on fire without being consumed, God meets with Moses and says this, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey." honey. So God's promise to Moses is that he will bring the people of God out from under the oppressive hand of Egypt. And how? How is he going to do that? Will listen to what Yahweh says, and they, the elders, will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to them, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go on a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt With all the wonders that I will do in it, and after that, he will let you go. So, what is the first sign that Moses will do in front of Pharaoh? He takes his staff, he throws it on the ground, it becomes a snake, he then catches it by the tail, and it becomes a staff. What is the second sign that he does in front of Pharaoh? He puts his hand inside his coat, and when he takes it out, it will be covered in leprosy. And when he puts it back in and takes it back out, his flesh will be restored. This is not some magic trick. This is the mighty hand of God symbolized with Moses' hand to Pharaoh. And throughout all the scriptures, this is the reference to show and symbolize God's authority and power. It's shown in three very distinct ways. It's shown in the creation of the world. Uh, this is in Isaiah. It was my hand that laid the foundations of the earth, my right hand that spread out the heavens above. When I call out the stars, they all appear in order. And in Jeremiah, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. So we have the creation of the world, then we have in the rescue of his people, fear not. This is in Isaiah again, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, and I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And it says in Exodus, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And then there's the third reference, which is the exaltation of Jesus. In Mark, it says, after the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. And then in Colossians, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So, under much scrutiny and duress, the promise to the churches in Asia Minor, where Peter is writing to, are the same promises to the Israelites in Exodus. God has great authority, and his hand has not left you. The hand that fashioned the depths of the world and the mighty hand that the Lord of the heaven and earth sits at is the hand that will deliver you. The Israelites were not called to trust God and then attack the Egyptians. The churches in Asia Minor are not called to revolt against the Roman Empire while believing God is powerful. There is vindication coming, but it's not at their own hand. There is justice coming, but they aren't the ones bringing it. And all throughout the Bible, we are privileged to partner with God while remembering it is God who receives glory. It is God who gets praise. It is God who remembers as the one who called us out, saved us, heals us, refines us, and cleanses us. And just like he did with the Israelites, and just like he did with the early church, his promise is that he will deliver us, and our response is coming under his loving authority. In other words, humility. What does it mean to be humble? I think practically it means that when you've made a mistake admitting it and saying you're sorry, it means when you are inadequate for a task, not being too proud to ask for help, it means doing ordinary jobs and spending ordinary time with ordinary people and being indifferent to accolades. In other words, humility is the risk of losing face. Humility is the risk of not being noticed, not being appreciated, not being praised, not being rewarded. Humility runs the obvious risk of being looked down on. And be honest, no one desires to be looked down on. Being looked down on is painful. Being unnoticed and unappreciated is painful. Losing face is wildly painful. Being made little of is painful, and therefore humility causes anxiety. Because when we lose face, when the facade that we have constructed gets taken down, when our social circles get smaller, when integrity and faithfulness to Jesus costs us something serious and significant, it does feel painful. And thus, our response of humility can actually create in us real anxiety. If you were to consider situations and scenarios where you have actually lost face, where you weren't noticed, where you were overlooked, where something you did did not get praised, and where something you didn't do you received blame for. There is serious anxiety that comes into play. So the secret sauce of humility is what we start doing with our anxiety. The text says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. God wildly wants to carry your burdens. Here is how every other God, every other idol, every other attachment is different from Jesus. All idols begin by offering great things for a very small price. Technology offers knowledge for just a little bit of your attention. TV offers escape for just a little bit of your time. Substances offer numbness for just a little bit of your body. All idols then fail more and more consistently to deliver on their original promises while ratcheting up their demands, which initially seemed so reasonable for worship and sacrifice. In the end, they fail. In the words of the psychiatrist Jeffrey Satinover, idols ask for more and more while giving less and less until eventually they demand everything and give nothing. Yahweh is not only a different God than all the other gods, he's a different kind of God than all the other gods. It's that he desires to shoulder your burden. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest, not I will make you work harder more, faster. Why? Because that is who he is. A God of complete authority and a God of unbelievable mercy. Total dominion over the world in which he governs with his mighty right hand. And his mighty right hand is Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who is in fact gentle and lowly in heart. The promise of God is that he is actively carrying actively involved, and actively desiring for you to sit with him. And our response is to place our anxieties on his back. So how do you humble yourself? By throwing your anxiety on God. How do you practically do that? How do you practically make the anxiety transfer from your back to God's back? It is the greatest journey of your life. It is to actually trust that he actually cares for the actual you. That promise does not hang in the air with like great ambivalence. The promise is that he cares about the thing that has you most worrying. It's not an abstract trust. If you are jumping off an airplane with a parachute, you're not just trusting that you're not going to die. You are banking your weight on the parachute that is in the backpack that is on your back that when you pull the string, it's going to shoot out and save you. That is a specific kind of trust. Believing that he is God and believing that he cares about that thing that you have a very difficult time believing that he actually cares about. The thing that keeps you up at night, the thing that you are too scared to share, the thing that is most tender in your heart, the thing that will cause you to lose significant relational capital. Placing that anxiety on God is the initial pathway to freedom. And then there's warfare. It says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. There is a fascinating encounter in uh, the movie The Silence of the Lambs where Clara Starling, who was a young FBI trainee, asked the serial killer, Hannibal Lecter, what happened to make him so twisted? Nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for behaviorism, Officer Starling. You've got everyone in moral dignity pants. Nothing is ever anyone's fault. Can you stand to say that I am evil? It is a very chilling scene, but there is quite a hint of truth to it. What would you say is evil? How would you define evil? Andrew Delbanco writes in his book, The Death of Satan, How Americans Have Lost the Sense of Evil. He says this, we have jettisoned in the West the idea of cosmic evil or transcendent evil or supernatural evil. We don't believe in it. And in fact, we don't like to use the word evil because it implies moral absolutes and value judgments. So we use medical terms. We talk about dysfunction. We talk about pathology. We don't use moral terminology. But as the 20th century has gone on, it has gotten harder and harder to say that Holocaust, and ethnic cleansing and serial killing is just bad psychological and sociological adjustment. After the mass shooting in Nashville at the Covenant School, the leader of a group called Civil Righteousness named Jonathan Tremaine Thomas wrote this, "'We need a mass change in the consciousness of the nation. "'Our culture has become radicalized, "'many are demonized, and there must be a mass exorcism.'" Now, there are demon hunters that look for a demon behind every bush, and that is problematic. But that is not our problem. Our problem is Kevin Spacey's line in The Usual Suspects. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing us that he did not exist. See, the Bible spares literally no expense at the fact that evil exists, that it permeates the world, and that it has an author. Its influence is everywhere, whether it be in institutions, governments, individuals, family lines, or neighborhoods. It manifests in addictions, diseases, violence, and possessions. It comes in physical, mental, emotional, and social ways. It can come in intense private moments and government-sponsored genocide. When the question is asked, why did God come to earth? We are so tempted to quote John three sixteen or the like, as if that was the only reason. Certainly that is a significant reason God loved the world so much that he brought himself to bear under its weight. But really, John 3.16 only exists because 1 John 3.8 exists. Why did God come to earth? The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. If your view of salvation and deliverance is that God came to save you from your personal sins only, then your view of God is way too small. Duke Professor Stanley Howawas says, what you are up against in being saved is not simply your personal faults and foibles and your petty temptations. You are up against what we call the principalities and powers. Evil is large, cosmic, organized, subtle, pervasive, and real. The powers never appear as evil or coercive. The powers always masquerade as freedoms that we have been graciously given or as necessities that we cannot live without salvation is a cosmic reality it is the world being reformed from chaos to order it is deliverance it is not merely my personal world though it includes that it is about the reconciliation and restoration of the entire world to Jesus and restoration implies there is a division a gap that has been formed and the name the scriptures give that is evil and the author is the devil. Some of you know the beautiful, harrowing, challenging story that our friend Marina has lived. And a few years ago, I was really struggling. What do I do? What do we do? A beautiful, young, teenage girl brought into parenthood far too soon, not by her own choice. With so many things stacked against her, Sarah and I are at a, we're at a complete loss. So I met with a man named Arturo, who's a lay pastor in this neighborhood, who is Puerto Rican-American, who grew up in San Diego and was raised in a challengingly violent home. And I sat across from him at La Herodora, and I asked, explain it to me. Explain to me the interplay of domestic violence in the Latin American community. Explain to me how to enter in, what do I do? What do I not know? Is this even my responsibility? And he gave some very insightful and wise words about culture and context and laws and morals. He talked about everything from family lineage to generational curses. But then it was as if Jesus took over his mouth and he started speaking. And he said, Wesley, your evangelical culture has so much to teach us about therapy. Someone like her will need a lifetime of therapy to help cope and process the various pain points of her life that are difficult and traumatic. We don't do therapy all that well in my culture, and she is going to need a lot of that. But you don't do casting out all that well in your culture, and she's going to need that too. And then he said, so here's the problem. You cannot cast out what needs counseling and you cannot counsel what needs casting out. We are not going to cast out the various things that have happened in her life, and you're not going to counsel her into deliverance. He said our discipleship to Jesus needs a more holistic approach that includes a real inventory of mental and emotional health, and your discipleship to Jesus needs a real encounter with God and the devil. And I sat there as speechless as I am right now. And when that family came to live in our house for eight days, I will never forget the look on their faces. It was not a fear of uncertainty. It was not apprehension of not knowing what was going to happen next. It was the face of someone who has experienced terror. The early church experience in Rome Churches around the world and places like Nigeria experience it every day. And while the majority of us live somewhat privileged lives, it is a wake-up call to our souls that evil is real, and the devil, in fact, does have an agenda for your life. And chaos is what happens when hell meets earth. And to the Western ears, that sounds pretty bizarre. But if you get outside some of the cozy corners of the American context, that sounds very, very normal. For people that are enlightened and rational, the world of demonic forces feels very out of touch, but for those who experience actual oppression by the hands of others, demonic, quite frankly, is the only explanation. We, as Americans, want everything to have a rational explanation. We like when things are easily fixed and quickly tidied up. But when we are dealing with issues of generational sin, incestual rape, mass shooting, racial inequality, the death of unborn infants, the porn industry, domestic violence, marital affairs, we have to take a long, hard look at what we believe the issue is and what we believe the solution is. It's probably probably a lot of things downstream. It's things like red flag laws and serious background checks, it's things like sexual abuse prevention training and breaking cycles, it's things like AA and NA and understanding the historic nature of lending discrimination against minorities in our own city. It's providing unexpected mothers a lot of care and support and providing people trapped in porn addictions with groups that will unburden their shame and confront their true selves. It's a lot of those things. But it is not less than fighting the fight of faith and actual intercessory prayer. Our intellect is probably our greatest hurdle. Because we believe that everything can be fought in the arena of ideas. It's just not so. We believe in truth. We believe in absolute truth. And thus, we are very much an advocate for engaging ideas thoughtfully, carefully, and convictionally. But there is a deeper world at play than merely the one of ideas. And a life of devotion to Jesus means an encounter with the devil. Prayer is war. It is wrestling. It's not enough to know that a judge is willing. There is an adversary that must be overcome. The scriptures describe him as a lion, not looking to protect, but intending to destroy. And this is a mystery. The scriptures, as it often does, states the facts without always explaining them and that can be very annoying for people who desire instructions to be explicitly laid out. But if we intend to take Jesus seriously, then we have to resign ourselves to the fact that there are only or two and there are only two kingdoms at play. There is a kingdom of light, there is the kingdom of darkness, and there is no middle ground, there is no neutral ground, there is no such thing as international waters when we are dealing with the kingdom of God. There is light, there is darkness, there is nothing else. And I have a feeling that when most of us pray, we feel like we are pleading for mercy in the midst of our messy lives, and it ends up being more like wishful thinking than speaking with authority. But to follow Jesus and thus to pray in Jesus' name means you are exercising authority from above as those who are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms— Resist him firm in your faith does not mean that you are mustering up a little willpower to pray. It means you are employing the reality that where Christ is, you actually are. It completely changes the way you pray. A defeated, beat down, self-pitying individual that does not feel like he has an undying affection of Jesus is going to ask God something very different Then someone who is believing that the God of the heavens has taken up residence within the church and the spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead gives you the power to intercede on behalf of others that God would act in the affairs of the world. Those are very different prayers. One of those people is very concerned that God is not concerned about the world. And the other is assured that where God's mighty right hand is, is actually where they personally are seated and that we would receive the invitation to partner with the Spirit of God to push back the powers of darkness that are so evident. And finally, power. It says, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Jesus will himself himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Restore is the Greek word katartosia. The people of God were always meant to be free. They were meant to experience the loving embrace, the shedding the false self, the getting honest the becoming free. And all throughout the Gospels, Jesus is doing a few different things. But underneath his miracles and his teachings is this. Jesus is giving people their lives back. He is remaking the world to its renewed design. The leper had lost their community because of their disease, and Jesus restores him to community. Women had been outcast because of their gender and Jesus reaffirms their dignity. The tax collector had been demonized because of his vocational practices and Jesus grants him mercy. God is, is in the business of giving you back what you have lost. It might be now. It might be in the new heavens. But whether now or then, God is committed to restoring you, restoring us. Suffering, is inherent to the Christian life. It is inherent. There is no discipleship without a cross-shaped life. But restoration is promised because the resurrection is true. Jesus is the first spring bud, and he's restoring the entire cosmos, including us. And think whatever you want about Disney's you know, political ethics. And I I also have some thoughts. But what they are hitting on is literally the story of God. The stories we have come to love, where beauty kisses the beast and becomes royalty, where Cinderella gets the glass slipper and marries the handsome prince, where little Red Riding Hood is rescued from the lying, deceiving wolf, they all ring true to us because they all remind us the story is, in fact, true. Death is the next to last word but it's actually life that will swallow up death forever then it's confirm and in or slash empower um, so here these three scriptures really synthesize what, uh, what Peter is getting at here Romans 8-9 you church in Rome you, Mosaic Knox, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Romans 8:14, "For all who are led by the Spirit are the children of God." Three verses later, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided. We suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. That should give you confidence, security, deep, deep roots. Suffering is inevitable, but you are a child of God. And then strengthen. One of the beauties of this letter is that it was written by a disciple whose flaws we have most vivid accounts of, and I find that unbelievably comforting. Right before Jesus' death, he tells Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brother's. The words of God that were prayed over Peter are the same words that are being prayed over you. Failure is not a bug of the Christian life. It is a fixed feature. It is hardwired into not only what it means to be human, but also what it means to be Christian. Jesus is praying for you right now. Now, you have an advocate, and when you return to Jesus, as Peter does during the breakfast at the sea, Jesus will say to you, now go, strengthen your siblings. And we wear our failures as mere disqualifiers. Jesus knows our failures and is in the business of redeeming them and thus strengthening us through them. You are not identified by how and when and why you failed. You are identified by the one who is praying for you. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And finally, he says the words establish or secure, which is to describe how firm a foundation is promised to the saints. What is this? What are we? If this is just a handful of folks who have commonalities and similar interests who get together every week or so around this idea of spirituality, and we have so many better things to do. We should stop doing that. But if, however, God has married himself to the local church, and this is a pocket of his mercy and grace breaking through time and space into real people for real encounters with the gravity of God, that sounds like church. And I am willing to push all my ships into the middle of the table for that. If we're just here for the idea of spirituality, I will fold my hand. The temple, the place where God's presence lived throughout so much of the Bible, is no longer bound to a brick-and-mortar building in the Middle East, but he has scattered his spirit over languages and cultures and time. We are the new temple. This is where God has chosen to take up his address. And if that is true, and the challenge is to believe that that is true, then we are as secure as his presence is. His love is as certain as tomorrow's sunrise. So the temple was the place for worship, and we are a little temple where everyone in here bears the image of the invisible God and everyone is invited to taste the grace and forgiveness of the personal god that evokes all that inspires worship and the centerpiece of the temple was the ark and the centerpiece of this little temple is no longer an ark it is a cross and it is a tomb the death resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, who then poured out his spirit on us so that we might become little Christ. We are being, you're not restored fully, you're not strengthened completely, you're not empowered inevitably, and you are not established finally. You are in process. We are all in process. We are being restored, we are being strengthened, we are being empowered, and we are being established. Paul's letter was written in like eighty sixty, 60, and it still rings as relevant as, I'm sorry, Peter's letter, but it still rings as relevant as ever. The last, gosh, five months, the whole premise of the last five months has been to secure your identity as both a stranger in the world And a citizen of heaven and in following Jesus we love the place we live and the people we live around and in following Jesus we begin to detach ourselves from the things that have captured the heart of our city and lean into a life of following Jesus that does not mirror our neighbor's life but does increase our love for our neighbor that is the great dichotomy We begin to look and smell and feel and act more like heaven, and in that we begin to abundantly increase our love for our world, even as we slowly detach ourselves from its idols. We are citizens of another kingdom. In many ways, we are people of the future saying with our words, our loves, and our life, there is another kingdom that is not of this world with a king that entered this world and showed us what it actually means to be human. The promise of God is that there is nothing in this world that is going to taint or tarnish or change his love for us. His mighty right hand is for us. And our response is to live in this world as if we believe that is actually true. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, when we have so many competing things for our attention, it is difficult to believe that that is true. We have our own narratives and our own scripts that just feel easier to believe. But help us move from a place of wishful thinking to a place of confident assurance. Increase our devotion to you and increase our love of our neighbor and rewrite and override the narratives that we have written for ourselves. Grow us up into people who take risks, who build roots, and who say there is a king, but he's not like the others. And he is actually for you. It is the wildest story in the world, and it is true. Not just factually, but it reigns true in our hearts. We want it to be true. Spirit of God, would you... Comfort us where we need comforting. And would you confront us where we need confronting? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org.